Good morning. We will be reading Matthew 18, 21 through 35, which can be found on page 695 in your pew Bible. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began to settle the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had the same mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brothers from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. You know, y'all have your own pew Bible. (laughs) Stop it. Oh. Right after the reading from Scripture. Well, maybe that's a good lead into this. You know, some of you call me Jim. Some of you call me Pastor. Some of you call me Dr. Barnett. Uh, some of you, some, the other day, somebody called me Reverend, which was interesting. Uh, I have been called worse. Uh, years ago, my church secretary got a phone call, and a guy on the other line said, I'd like to speak to the head hog at the trough. She said, uh, excuse me, he said, I'd like to speak to the head hog at the trough. And she said, sir, if you mean Jim Barnett, tell, call him brother or reverend or mister or something, but not head hog at the trough. And he was on the other line. He said, okay, well, I'm a hog farmer. I just sold a whole bunch of hogs. I was going to give a $20,000 donation to the building fund. But, and she said, oh, hold on a minute. I think the big pig just walked in. So. Now, I just told a joke, and I did that on purpose, not as a ho-hum crasher. I wanted to explain something about a joke. They always have a setup. They always have a punchline. Very frequently, they have hyperbole. They have exaggeration. Jesus used that a lot in a, in a joking way that, that really led to very, very serious points. But he used hyperbole all the time. He would get on the religious leaders about straining a net and swallowing a camel. Uh, he talked about how it's, it's easier for a camel to go through what? Do you remember? The eye of a needle uh, rather than a rich person, than it is for a rich person to make it into the kingdom of God. If your right hand sins against you, what? Cut it off and throw it away. He's using hyperbole, and he does that a lot to make very serious points. And in a sense, more than any other parable I know of, the parable of the unmerciful servant is really kind of a parabolic joke with a very, very serious punchline. It really talks about the outrageous grace of God and therefore the way you and I are called to duplicate that grace to other people because of how we have been outrageously graced ourselves. But are we really willing to do that? I think Peter was struggling with whether or not he was willing to do it. He goes up to Jesus and says, how many times should I forgive somebody who sins against me? And he says, seven times? 
And I think he's thinking that he is being generous, being really magnanimous, because back then a rabbi would tell you in Jesus' day, forgive a person three times after that. If if they still are not forgivable, you can give them the works. (laughs) You can get even with them however you need to. So he thinks he's being, you know, very, very generous by saying seven times. And Jesus says, no, you must forgive them. Somebody fill in the blank. You, you don't, not seven times, but what? Seventy times seven. And, and some translations say 77 times. Whether it's 77 or 490, what Jesus is saying is you've got to forgive them over and over and over. And oftentimes, as you know, and we've talked about this a lot, it's a process. Someone has really wounded you, betrayed you, disappointed you, done you wrong. Sometimes it takes a while to do it, but it's, it's that you begin with that desire to forgive them and then move along that process toward forgiveness, which brings us to this parable of a king who's wanting to settle accounts with his servants. And by servants, they're talking about members of his staff. And he goes up to this one guy and says, you owe me 10,000 talents. Now, right there, a joke begins. I mean, it's kind of jokes within jokes because 10,000 talents was more than what uh, the revenue was in a given year for the Roman Empire, okay? It's kind of like saying, you owe me the national debt by the end of Friday. So it's already absurd. Already, Jesus' listeners are chuckling. They're like, what? This is crazy. Where is this going? And, And the joke gets funnier because the guy says, be patient with me. I will pay it back. Are you kidding me? Uh, This guy probably made the equivalent of of $80 a year. (laughs) And so how long would it take him to pay that back? Oh, about 125,000 years. So already they're thinking this joke is getting funnier and funnier, more crazy. They're just choking in laughter probably as they hear. The bottom line point at this point that Jesus is trying to get across is what? This guy is way over his head. Has has a, a debt that there's no way that he could pay. Totally unpayable. And then there's this unexpected turn, as Jesus always has in these parables. The king cancels the debt. He forgives it. He lets the guy go. There's this unexpected grace, this unexpected forgiveness. And the servant leaves, and he has to be relieved. But it's interesting, you get down to verse 28. And it says, he went out and he found someone who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, the word found there, you've got to understand, is the kind of, he had already been hunting this guy down. And when he found him, it was like, aha, there you are. And the message is what? You owe me 100 denarii, really around 20 bucks. Okay, for you and me, that'd be 20 bucks. And, and the guy doesn't have it, and he says, well, well please have mercy on me. You know, I, I can pay it back, you know, at some point. This guy shows no mercy on him whatsoever. In fact, what does it say? It says he choked him. Now, if you study the Roman historian Livy, who, who was alive during that time, he wrote in one of his historical annals that back then, in Greco-Roman culture, if somebody owed you money and you couldn't pay it, it was legally acceptable for you to choke that person, culturally acceptable to choke that person and twist their neck to the point, it said in his, in his historical annals, to the point that the person's nose starts bleeding, mouth starts bleeding. I mean, it's that, that intense. And that's what this guy does. Now, this guy owes him 20 bucks, around 20 bucks, as opposed to well more than $20 million. And he humiliates the man, twists his neck, it says. And the joke becomes more outrageous at this point. Why? Compare it to this. It's as if you, let's put it this way, apply it to you. You won the lottery. Uh, You're not Baptist right now, okay? You won the lottery, and uh, uh, you, you get the check, you go down and deposit the check, cash the check, whatever, 
And then immediately after, let's say, depositing that check, you go out looking for that person who borrowed six bucks from you to pay for Wednesday night supper, you know, the other Wednesday night in the fellowship hall, okay? It's that absurd, and yet this, that's what this guy does to the point where he throws the man in prison, has him thrown in prison. This guy owes him 20 bucks. He's just been given, forgiven the debt of millions and millions of dollars. And word gets back to the king, gets reported on, and he is furious. In fact, let's read this final part because this troubles people. This is what I love about Brookwood is you got, hey, wait a minute, when this says this, don't skim over this. What does this say? Y'all are always great about that. So let me, let me put us on the spot here. Verse 32, let me begin there. Then the master, the, the king, called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he, could be, until he could pay back all that he owed. Jesus closes with this statement. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Wow, that sounds intense. Is God going to do that to us? What's going on there? Keep in mind, Jesus is using hyperbole here. He's using hyperbole throughout this, if you, if you will, this parabolic joke. And this man had been offered forgiveness for a debt that he could never pay. But here's the key. He never really received it. He didn't embrace it. He didn't realize just how generous that grace was, how outrageous the grace was. How do we know that? Because of how he treated this other man whom he sought out and found for 20 bucks. He really had not received the grace. It kept him from forgiving others. And because of that, now follow me here, the jailers in this passage really are the man himself, really his own inner sins and greed and pride and whatever it was that motivated it for him to go and be unmerciful toward this other man. He never had really received that grace. And so he could not impart it upon this other person who owed him a lot, lot less. So again, the master gave him over to his own hurt locker, if you will, his own torture chamber, his own consequences. Study Romans chapter 1. Uh, it talks about how, you know, and, and Paul goes through this litany of people who are, who are turning away from God, not repenting of their sins. And more than once it says in Romans chapter 1, what? And so God gave them over to their sins. Do you follow me? The master isn't really the one who's throwing him into a torture chamber. That person is throwing himself in there because of his sin, his unresolved sin. Because he's not recognized this grace that he has received. God gave him over to his sin. In context here, the master gave him over to his sin. That's what's going on. Why? Because the man disgraced grace. He disgraced grace. He didn't really receive it. Didn't really, you know perhaps comprehend just how incredible and outrageous this grace was. When you do that, it has consequences. But you can still receive it and get it back. And that's the good news of the gospel, of course. What's the bottom line point of this parable? Once you have experienced the incredible grace of God, especially through the cross of Jesus Christ, you are called to duplicate it with others, no matter who they might be. And this is where it gets edgy because it's really toward people who can be the most difficult person for you to forgive. Jesus is saying here, you owe a debt you will never be able to repay. You know, your, your, your debt's been canceled. It was definitely canceled on the cross. 
And that's, that's what it takes to realize the real mercy of Christ. And, and to take it seriously and to show other people, to give evidence that you are a forgiven believer, to give evidence of that, you've got to duplicate that grace out there in the world. Yea, even with the people who are most difficult for you to forgive. And that's the tough part. <laughs> Those who have betrayed you, humiliated you, those who have let you down, those who have disappointed you, those who have been harsh to you, hurt you. Who, who bubbles to the surface of your mind and heart when I say that? Yes, even that person you were called to forgive. And yes, sometimes it might take a process. That's why Jesus says you've got to forgive them over and over. But we're called to do that. We're called to really live out what Paul said in Colossians 3.13. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And I'm here to tell you, and I can say from personal experience, that's hard to deal with. Now, I'm going I'm to be very transparent here, and we're going to go to something else very transparent. It would, be easy, it would have been easy for me to have gone to a book or the Internet or somewhere and found a, a real stirring story of somebody forgiving somebody else. Decided not to do that this week. I thought I would let someone from this church family speak. Let me give you a little background, and Matea is going to help me out here in just a minute. Uh, Jody Burris. Y'all, a lot of you know the Burrises, don't you? Just marvelous people. I just adore Jody and, and Jason Burris. Great people. They got great kids, as you know. Uh, Jody is such a compassionate person, such a well-spoken person, so eloquent, uh, very... Uh, just funny, if y'all have been around her. She's just a funny person, just a great person to be around and so committed to, to this church and to her, to her Lord. Um, but just this past week, she sent um, an entry for our upcoming Advent devotional book. Uh, you know, we have one of those every year, in fact. And, I, and I'm, Well, yeah, I will brag. We have the best Advent devotional book in the city. We really do. Melinda Dressler, um, Susan Turch, and who's the other? Oh, Rosanna, who helps out with it. Well, they had asked Jody to write one. I think Jason wrote one last year or the year before, and it was just beautiful. And they were like, hey, you got to get Jody to do one. She's, she's great, too. And so she wrote one, and, and, and she wasn't sure whether to submit it. And so she sent it to me and to Rosanna saying, hey, I just wrote this, but it's pretty intense. And, and you gave me the passage about come long expected Jesus, you know, and, and just how we, sometimes it's hard to wait on Jesus, especially when you've got unresolved stuff. Unresolved forgiveness issues is where she took it. And it's a pretty intense writing, and she was like, I, I don't want this to be included in the devotional booklet if it's inappropriate. And I read it, and, and it's raw, and it's beautifully written, and it's where you and I find ourselves at some point in time, and I just love the transparency of it, and you and I talk about our need to be transparent with each other. And so I asked her, I said, this should go in the Advent booklet, number one, because it speaks to where all of us are at some point in time. But also, do you mind if, if, if I or Matea were to read it this Sunday? Matea is such a good friend and has been such a wonderful minister uh, to, to the Burris kids. And she said, absolutely. She said, I'm out of town this Sunday. They're not here. Uh, they're out of town. But she said, if, if it speaks to anybody, uh, that would be fine with me. And, and it's a few minutes long, but it's, it, to me it's just beautiful and powerful and uh, speaks to what we're talking about to a large extent. So, Matea, if you don't mind, like you did in the first service, we're, we're just going to hear from Matea now uh, reading this entry that Jody will have. You'll see it in the Advent booklet, but uh, hear these words uh, that I think are quite powerful. I miss my dad the most around the holidays. 
not just Thanksgiving and Christmas. He even claimed the 4th of July, trying to always make us believe the neighbors were setting off fireworks in honor of his birthday as well as Independence Day. I most certainly loved my daddy. It was the liking that never came easy. A Baptist minister by calling and a carpenter by profession, he was a big man with a big laugh and even bigger personality. He and my mother taught me about Jesus and how he sacrificed himself for me. After I made my profession of faith at age nine, it was my daddy's hands that baptized me and his eyes that cried joyful tears. Putting a man like him into words isn't easy, but let's just say he filled a room all on his own. Simply being near him felt like a gift. But biggest of all was his explosive temper. Although it made few appearances in his public life, it had free reign in our home. While he never physically harmed me or my siblings, his words struck harder than any fist and lingered long after the shouting ceased. Bruises on our minds and our hearts. Apologies were not unheard of, but were few and far between. Instead, he'd make amends through actions and offer to ride with him into town, a chance to hammer some of the nails in his latest woodworking project, an extended stay in the sunshine he could turn on seemingly at a whim. Living with a man like that is no easy task. I can't say how many years I begged God to make a change and waited. The waiting brought more fervent prayers. Those prayers spawned more impatient waiting. The waiting fostered doubt until finally I stopped praying at all. By the time I married and left home at 20, I was convinced God simply wasn't listening. Within two years of my marriage, my dad was gone, taken by a rare genetic disorder that robbed him of his thoughts long before it took his life. Until the day he died, I didn't realize I'd secretly been waiting, holding out some hope that God would finally come through for me. At my dad's funeral, I cried like I'd never cried before, mourning less for what it had been and more for what would never be. I made an uneasy truth with God. In my mind, I granted him forgiveness for failing to provide me the earthly father I needed, as if somehow I were doing him a favor and continuing to call him Lord despite this obvious failure. Years passed, and with the birth of my first son, I found my avenue back to God. With the birth of my triplets, I finally turned my life completely over to him, in earnest this time, recognizing his hands were better equipped than mine to care for my family than my own. I even named one of my sons after my father, thinking that now there'd be a Tom on this earth I could truly love. We fell into our routine of caring for our small army of boys, but Tom always stood out biggest, strongest, widest smile. Even before he could crawl, when I'd reach for him, he'd laugh and slither away on his belly, making running from Mommy the most hilarious game ever. As he got older, he began to stand out even more. First walker, first reader, first to throw a ball and ride a bike. But there were other firsts. First call from the principal, First to be sent home from school. First public meltdown, the likes of which I'd never seen before. Only, 
I had seen it before. And seeing it again scared me more than these inadequate words could convey. I could barely breathe, superstitiously thinking I'd brought this on my son by my own hubris all those years ago. Time went by, doctors were consulted, diagnoses were received, and Tom was still the biggest boy in the room, with the biggest smile, the most booming laugh, and the worst temper. Volcanic, unpredictable, uncontrollable. I cried out to God, begging him to let this cup pass from my child, my beautiful boy, and I waited. But this time the waiting was different. This time I trusted my God to care for me and to provide me what I needed. I read a quote from Mother Teresa. Prayer doesn't change things. Prayer changes you. And it did begin to change me. I pried from my mother and older sisters uncomfortable truths about my father's childhood. How he was farmed out to different relatives from an early age because his mother couldn't handle him. How when he did return to live with his parents, his mother's attempt at discipline had often crossed over to actual beatings. How careful he must have been to have never indulged in the physical release of his anger. I marveled. This from the man I thought never even tried to rein in his temper. As I learned more about my father, I came to understand why he had once referred to his temper as his thorn in the flesh, how he too had prayed for deliverance from this just as fervently as I had ever prayed on his behalf. And a heart change happened. I forgave my daddy for all that he wasn't because I love my son for all he is. The unanswered prayers of decades past have become the answer my son needs today. I can offer him a mother's understanding born of my childhood experience, and can give him all the help to which my father never had access. I pray every day for Tom's deliverance from this mental pain that plagued my father all his life, and I wait. If anything, the waiting is even more difficult this time around, but I wait with expectation, knowing my God has never failed me. I so appreciate her raw honesty. I so appreciate it because it's a friend of ours here, a member of our family. I just find it very powerful. And, and let me reread just a portion of what Matea read toward the close. I forgave my daddy for all he wasn't because I love my son for all he is. So powerful. Forgiving someone in the past so that they can offer grace to someone now in the present brings us right here to the table that which was done on our behalf in the past so that we can celebrate this now in the present and be touched by his grace through this meal that you and I participate in this incredible incredible gift that you and I get to be a part of so let's prepare ourselves for it will you bow your heads with me please and before we enter into this time I want to ask if you would think about um, a situation where forgiveness is needed and called upon, and yet it's so, so difficult for you. It could be a family member. It could be a friend or someone who might be described now as a former friend. It might be someone at work. Uh, 
might be someone that you haven't been in touch with for years, and yet there is a, a raw wound there. And Christ at least wants you to begin to have the desire to forgive that person. If nothing else, will you pray for that desire to be forgiving for that person? And perhaps this is the time now where you can really set that load down at Christ's feet who forgave you so outrageously on the cross. That's where you need to take this. That is exactly where you need to take this. Can you do that right now in silence just between yourself and the living Christ who showered you with his grace and forgiveness? Take a moment and ask him to help you to forgive. confess to you that this is easier said than done, but no one understands that better than you. You didn't just preach forgiveness. You didn't just talk forgiveness. You didn't just declare forgiveness. You did forgiveness on the cross and canceled a debt that we can never, ever begin to repay. So make us not like the unmerciful servant, but make us to be more like you, willing to forgive even those who are so difficult for us to forgive. Make us a forgiving community, O God, that others would see you in us. Help us to give evidence of our relationship with you, how we embrace this forgiveness, realize it, and pass it on to others. Free us from our own lockups, our own prisons where we refuse to forgive. And in doing so, yes, you give us over to that. You give us the freedom to do that. But Lord, help us in our own freedom to choose. Turn to you and seek you out to empower us to be a forgiving person, a forgiving people. And we thank you so much for this meal that says says it all by the breaking of your body, by the shedding of your blood. We remember what you did for us so long ago, forgiving us for our own sins. Forgive us our debts, O oh God, as we forgive our debtors. May we keep that in mind as we come forward for the meal now. We pray these things in your name. Amen.